Well, I want to say hello to everyone. Thank you for tuning in, being with us. We really appreciate your time. I know that you can be tuned in to just about any station that you'd like, but you are tuned in here. And tonight, I am here all alone. That's okay, because Jesus Christ is here as well. And we thank you for participating and all the good words and everything else that you have, well, uh, put up on Facebook for us and messages and we just appreciate the fact that you have uh, supported the ministry here at North Park Baptist Church. My name is Pastor Sal, pastor of North Park Baptist Church in San Bernardino. I know that we have people listening to us all over the place, and I just want to thank you once again. A couple of things before we get started. As I mentioned before, we have our Good Friday service tonight. We will have a sunrise service on Sunday morning, 6 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, and then at 10.30 Pacific Standard Time as well, we will have our resurrection service, and then at 6 p.m. on Sunday, we will also have our Sunday night service, kind of wrap it all up together. And all of it is, what are we doing here? What are you doing? How are you doing? And what are you doing with the, what Jesus Christ has done for us? So before we get started, I want to just go to the Lord in prayer, and I'm going to ask you to follow me with your family and friends and those of you that are uh, tuning in right now. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, thank you once again. For giving us opportunities like this to be able to come together and uh, just to hear your word. And I pray, Father, that tonight's message is a message that will touch and that will uh, impact people's lives. There is transformation that needs to take place. There is this idea of us being all alone, but we know we're not. And I pray, God, that you visit with every family, every person, and everyone that is with us here tonight. So, Lord, uh, lead this evening in what we do as we proclaim your word as we share these seven promises that we can glean from the seven last sayings of Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Father, that uh, people in, in past have taken these sayings and have organized them for us so that we can study them, so we can look at them, so we can read them, and so we can apply them to our life. So, Father, I just pray that you use tonight to minister to your people and your church. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. All right, I'm going to be going through a few verses, a couple of things I'd like for you to do. First and foremost is get yourself a pencil or a pen, something to write on. I'm going to be giving you some verses that you might be able to go back on and uh, some points as we talk about these seven last sayings. Now, if you want to title the top of your page, you can title it The Seven Promises of God. And these seven promises are promises for you, and they are spoken to you from Jesus Christ himself at the cross. A lot of things happened prior to his crucifixion. A lot of things took place as to get him to that point. If you were with us last Sunday, you, you remember us going through the Passover Seder. And what we found is that Messiah was in the Passover. What we found is that every element to that Seder plate reflected Jesus Christ. And we saw where Jesus took the bread the bread of affliction, and he passed it around to his disciples, and he said, this is my body. And we saw that that bread was very significant to the Jewish people, but they had no clue as to why they would wrap it in a linen cloth, hide it in somewhere in the house, and then after dinner was over, the children would go and find it and look for it. They had no idea as to what that meant. And uh, they, would, they would call that the, the bread of affliction, and they would hide it, the afikomen, and what they would do is they would go out and look for it, and they would bring it back, and it had to be ransomed. The, chi the child would say, you can have it back, but you have to give me something for it. And it it's a very beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. 
the lamb, the, the blood on the doorpost and how it was sprinkled. And, and then the third cup, the third cup of redemption that Jesus Christ drank from and gave it to his disciples. So all of this was taking place the night that Jesus Christ was arrested. After the supper, after everything was done, they sang songs, the Bible says, and they went to the Mount of Olives to pray. Jesus went with them, and together they, they prayed and they sang, and, and they just rejoiced on this joyous occasion, not knowing what was coming, but Jesus did know. And it was during that time when Judas went and betrayed Jesus, and he brought the temple guards to arrest Jesus at night. And if you have followed uh, any type of service or any type of message concerning the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, you would know that these trials that they had Jesus go through were all illegal. They were done at night. And each one of them drew him closer and closer to the cross. And each time people wondered, why is he saying something? All these accusations that they're bringing up against him, they, they have nothing, nothing against him. And he should be able just to dispel all of these things. But yet, wait, we know that he's going he's to pull out a miracle from uh, underneath his cloak. And I, we know that he's going to do something to be able to, to get out of this mess. We just know that's what's going to happen. But as the night unfolded, as they scourged him, as they beat him, as they plucked his beard, as they hit him, and, and they, they, they blindfolded him and asked them, who hit you? Who hit you? And, and all these things that went along with this whole crucifixion process, Jesus never opened his mouth. And so we call this day Good Friday. And as we go through this, the last seven sayings, and I'm going to try to paint the picture for you as to what he went through and the pain and the anguish and the suffering that he went through just for you and me. And why it was that he went through all this and what you can do because of this. And so we're going to try to wrap it all up at the end with a challenge. And I'm going to give you some challenges along the way, especially because these promises are for you. These promises are from God. And these promises, uh, God wants you to claim and to bring for yourself. And so we are, at, we are now at the point where Jesus Christ has been scourged beyond recognition. I know people have taught, and you might have read some articles or some books, where Jesus was lashed 40 minus 1 lashes. And that's true that there was such a punishment in the Jewish temple for Jewish congregants. It, there was such a punishment of 40 minus 1, 39 lashes, because it was known that the 40th lash could possibly kill him. And they didn't want to kill anybody. All they wanted to do was punish them. But that was in the Jewish temple. We have to remember that it wasn't the Jews that were scourging him. It wasn't the Jews that were punishing him. They handed that over to the Romans. And the Romans, what they did is they had this process of scourging people, not the 40 minus one, but they scourged people with this, this whip called the cat of nine tails. You're probably familiar with this. I'm sure you've heard the story many times before that this cat of nine tails had these nine lashes or nine pieces of leather. And at the end of each one of these pieces of leather, these strips, they had sharp shrapnel, some bones, and some metal ball bearings. The ball bearings and the metal that was on it was to tenderize the back or the front or wherever it was hitting you. And the shrapnel that was tied to the end of these, uh, this cat of nine tails was designed to rip the flesh off your skin. And Jesus was beat to a pulp, a bloody pulp, beyond recognition. And he was, he was dehydrated. He was uh, tired, slept, uh, didn't sleep the night before, and all these things as he was 
being marched to Golgotha. And you know the story, that as he's walking this three-hour trek down what we consider to be called Via Dolorosa, and down this Via Dolorosa, or the painful trek that Jesus took this pedabon, this cross beam of a cross, and he carried it all the way as far as he could until he fell on his knees and busted up his knees on this cobblestone road, and the the beam just slid down his back and splinters going into the, the crevices of these cuts that he had just received from the Roman soldiers. And all, this, uh, all the people yelling and hissing and reviling him and, and, and casting out curses against Jesus Christ. And all these things that were going on in the process before even getting to the cross, before even getting to the point of crucifixion. We are told that he couldn't, he couldn't carry on any longer. The Roman soldiers, what they did is they, they picked up a, a man, a man, Simon from Cyrene. Simon from Cyrene was told to carry the cross for him. And he carried it all the way up to Golgotha as they got there. As they got there and they were crucifying Jesus Christ. The very first saying that Jesus says is the one that we're going to go into right now. And... and there, there is no way to really describe the pain and the anguish except for the way I just did now. And, and if we had any type of way to go all the way back there and see the pain and the anguish that he had endured, you would, see, you would say for yourself, I can't believe he's not doing something. I can't believe he's not saying something. I can't believe he's not rescuing himself from this cruel punishment. He is innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. The Pharisees knew this. The Sadducees knew this. Even Pilate knew this. I don't find anything wrong with him. There's not our heritage. I don't find anything wrong with him. Uh, everyone understood that there was nothing wrong with him. But the very first thing that he says, number one, he says that there is forgiveness at the cross. There is forgiveness at the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verses 33 to 34, it says, that as they were crucifying him, as they had him up on the cross, as they were pounding the nails into his hand, two other criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as the blood poured from his hands and his feet, and as the blood splattered on the floor, and as his anguish and his pain just screamed out, the one thing that everyone was hoping he would do is call down the angels to guard you and to save you. But what he did instead is his father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in Isaiah, it tells us that, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressions and the transgressors. The very fact that he was asking the Father to forgive them was already prophesied about, was already talked about. And that was something that was being already played out. So that had to be something that Jesus said. The words were probably spoken while our Lord was being nailed to the cross or as soon as the cross was reared up. And, and, and it was worthy to remark that as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, 
the great high priest himself began to intercede for all humanity. While others were mocking him, just taunting him and jeering him, they reached at a high fever pitch. It was a mob mentality. Christ responded in precisely the opposite way that everybody thought he should have responded. Instead of threatening his enemies, instead of saying that God's going to get you, I didn't do anything wrong. What is wrong with you? He brings forgiveness. Folks, there's forgiveness at the cross. doesn't matter what you've done. There is forgiveness at the cross. The whole meaning of the cross is summed up in this one act of intercession. As Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, verse 17, where he says, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That was his purpose, was to intercede, was to save, and to save those that were lost. And any of us would have desired only to curse and revile and to yell out, but he says, they do not know what they do. Now, we have to remember that even though a person sins unwillingly, it's still sin. It doesn't mean that you're absolved from that sin. It doesn't mean that ignorance does, is no excuse. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that we are without excuse. For those that have traded in the, the whole process of understanding who God is, instead of worshiping God, the creator, they worship the creation. And Paul says they're without excuse. Many of the taunting spectators at Calvary had heard Christ teach, and they seen him do miracles, and they really believed in their hearts that, that he did not deserve to die this way. Many of them did. And yet, here he is in that process of dying. They were blinded to the full reality that they were crucifying God, the Son. Therefore, they did not recognize that the one they were putting to death, that he that he is the light of the world. Had they known, Paul says to the people in Corinth, had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had they known, their eyes were blinded. Jesus still says, forgive them, Father. For forgive them. And how was Jesus' prayer answered? Well, you have to understand that forgiveness didn't come to everyone because not everybody asked for it. But if you remember, we're going to talk about the, that thief. We don't know his name. We don't know what he did. All we know that he was deserving of death. And he asked for forgiveness. And Jesus gave it to him. The centurion at the foot of the cross, when Jesus died, the centurion saw what had taken place. He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Went through the same conversion phase that the, uh, that the sinner had, that the, the, person, the thief had gone through as well. There were other answers to that prayer that came later on while they were at Pentecost and, and the, the Holy Spirit came upon them and Peter preached the gospel and he said, you murdered the Christ. And many of them were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know that all these forgiveness Prayers that went out, they were received by those whom God had called. Not everybody received that forgiveness. And not everybody was willing to take it. They loved the darkness instead. It is important to understand that. He was inter interceding on behalf of all who would repent and turn to him as Lord and Savior. His prayer was that when they finally realized the enormity of the sin of what they had done, and, and they would seek the Heavenly Father, and the Father would forgive their sin. 
There is something that each person must do. We have to recognize that sin. But those who repented and sought forgiveness, like the centurion, like the thief, like the priest, Joseph, and uh, Aramea, and Nicodemus that came at night to ask for the body of Jesus Christ, very well might have, would, were repented and received that forgiveness. The people in the crowd and all who later embraced him would find abundant mercy in answer to Christ's petition on their behalf. There is forgiveness at the cross. That's God's promise to you and to me. Number two, there is a promise of salvation at the cross. There is a promise of salvation at the cross. Christ, as he's doing his best and holding on until everything that has happened to him, he starts to speak and, and he, can't, he can barely speak. He, he only has enough energy to, to be able to utter these, these words and he only has enough energy to be able to get these words out. And there's something that we need to know about these two thieves, these two robbers. And I got to have to have you go back to Matthew chapter 27 for me. In Matthew 27, because we don't get these verses all lined up in Scripture. We have to get all these promises, all these last sayings from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and we have to kind of set it up a little bit to find out what, what, what's going on in this phase. But in Matthew chapter 27, verses 38 through 43, it says this. That um, then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by deride him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Now catch this. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Something took place in one of these robbers. Something took place in one of these men. Because as Matthew was sharing with us the testimony, he's saying, I saw both of them yelling at Jesus. I saw both of them reviling Jesus. I saw both of them cursing Jesus and everybody else that was around them. But something took place. There was a time of contemplation. There was a time of recognizing that Jesus Christ didn't have any animosity towards those that were doing something to him. And as they were crucified next to him, they both screamed out. They both yelled out. Now look at this. Go back to Luke 23. In Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. And in Luke 23, this is the account that Luke has given us. And he says this. One of the criminals who were hanged riled at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Somehow this guy just kept going, Aren't you the Christ? Come on, get us off of here. And the other guy just kind of paused and looked, you know, this isn't right. As my friend would say, that ain't right. This isn't right. Save yourself, he said, and save us while you're at it. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, we can take that part and that verse apart, and we will at some time, but not today. The important thing is that this man was in paradise. 
Was it today? Was it that day? Was it later? This man was in paradise or is in paradise. I can tell you that with all certainty. He wouldn't be in here if he wasn't. He wouldn't be in the word. We don't know this man. We don't know his name. We don't know where he came from. We don't even know what he did. All we know is he was deserving of the penalty of death, just like you and I are deserving of the penalty of death. Each one of us are deserving of the penalty of death. That's why Jesus Christ had to go to the cross. Now, I believe that the other thief, though he may have known Jesus, and he understood, because this thief did, he knew that, yeah, well, I know Jesus. Yeah, I've seen him do miracles. As a matter of fact, I was there one time getting some food because I was hungry, and I've seen all those things that he had done. And that the, the first thief, the good thief is what we call them, or the repentant thief, he was, he was possibly remembering that too. But something took place in his heart. Something transformed him. Something regenerated him. And something just removed all the guilt and shame off of his shoulders. And he was able to come down from that cross as he was going up to paradise. What happened? I, I don't know exactly uh, except for what the Bible tells us here in Luke chapter 23, verse 40. I'm going to go over that right now. But, but some of you right now are thinking, well, I know Jesus Christ. That's why I'm here tonight. And I know Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate um, Easter, which I call the Resurrection Sunday. That's why I know Jesus Christ, because I know he was born on Christmas. And I go to church. I even have a Bible. I'm not that bad of a person. And folks, you're deluding yourself if you think that that's all it takes. There needs to be genuine repentance. And I can show you from what this thief experienced. First and foremost, you want to write this down. Number one, you need to fear God. You need to fear God. There are a lot of people afraid right now, not of God, but of the coronavirus. There are a lot of people afraid right now, not of God, but of the government, what they can take away from them. A lot of people are afraid right now, not of God, but of all the circumstances within your life. There are a lot of people right now afraid, not of God, but of what could happen to my life. Jesus himself said, don't worry about those that can harm the body. What you need to do is to be afraid of those of God himself who can kill the soul. There was a wonderful message preached years ago called sinners in the hands of an angry God. Folks, Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he does, he's going to take those with him. And when he takes those with him, he's going to come back and, and he's going to rule this world. And when he rules this world, the dead that died without Christ will be resurrected and there will be an everlasting punishment for each one of those. And, and many of those well-meaning people that believe that they know who Jesus Christ is, Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me for I never knew you. And they're going to say, but didn't we cast out demons and didn't we prophesy in your name and didn't we do miracles? And Jesus says, depart from me, away from me. There are a lot of well-meaning people within the church that have not surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You need to fear God. See, that's the first thing he says. Do you not fear God? He told the person right next to him. And he's saying, there ain't no God, or something to that matter, I'm sure. There is no God. If there was a God, we'd all be off of this. If there was a God, he would be loving. He wouldn't allow us to go through all this. The second thing he, you got to remember, number two, is recognize that you are a sinner. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. He says, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, 
you got to recognize that you are a sinner. Number three, admit that you're a sinner. Because he goes on to say, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. You've got to fear God because of what could take place without God. You've got to recognize that you're a sinner and admit the fact that you're a sinner. You cannot save yourself. There is no way that you can do enough good to save yourself. And the promise of salvation comes to us from the cross. And Jesus says, this is all you have to do, is to commit yourself to lordship, to recognize that you're a sinner, admit that you're a sinner, you recognize you're spiritually bankrupt, you need God's mercy and grace to be forgiven. And the fourth thing is recognize, excuse me, confess Jesus. Confess Jesus. The man says, this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We need to confess him as our Lord and our Savior. Many of you have confessed him as your Savior. And you believe that because of what he's done on the cross, I'm not going to hell. Praise God. But is he your Lord? Can you genuinely say that people can say about you that you are a Christian, a believer? You have to confess Jesus Christ as the thief did. He said, this man has done no wrong. The next thing you need to do is ask for forgiveness. Ask Jesus Christ to forgive you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've gone. It doesn't matter what's happened in your life. If you genuinely recognize that he is God, that you genuinely recognize that you're a sinner and you admit that you're a sinner and confess Jesus Christ, you ask for forgiveness, that's the prayer and the promise from the first saying of Jesus Christ. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And he says, remember me, Jesus, when you get it. Just remember me. Just remember. That's all I'm asking. Uh, You know, I don't ask you to get me off the cross. I know right now it's feasibly impossible. Just remember me. And then believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is Lord. He says, when you come into your kingdom. You see, a kingdom needs a Lord. A kingdom needs a king. A kingdom requires someone to be in charge and over. And many of us have recognized Jesus Christ as Savior, but have we submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? He's the one that needs to call the shots. Well, how do I know what shots there are to be called? What's right here? This is where you get it, from God's word. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. In saying that much, he confessed his own guilt. He also acknowledged the justice of penalty he had been given. He affirmed the innocence of Christ. He turned to Jesus and confessed him as Lord. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, yes, today. There's much, there's much debate about paradise. There's much debate about the today. There's much debate about all that. This gentleman, this thief, he's in paradise. We I mean, can get into all the other topics later. No sinner was ever given more explicit assurance of salvation than this man on the cross. The most unlikely of saints was received immediately and unconditionally. Do you remember when that happened in your life? Do you? Into the Savior's kingdom? The incident is one of the greatest biblical illustrations of truth, of justification by faith. He didn't have to get baptized. He didn't have to go through class 101, 201, 301. He didn't have to go through any other catechism training or church doctrine. All he had to do was to recognize, first and foremost, fear God. Recognize he was a sinner. 
confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. This man had done nothing to merit salvation. You and I have done nothing in our past to merit salvation. But God's grace is given freely to those whom he chooses. Already, this man was at his deathbed. This man was ready to go. And I know a lot of you are thinking, you know, well, I'll just wait until that time. With this coronavirus, for those that actually catch it and those that actually succumb to it, a lot of people are making their final arrangements. Many people are getting right with God, getting right with family, getting right with all these things. Some of you are probably even afraid now, and you're getting right with God, and that's good. Sometimes God has to shake us up that way, like in the case of this sinner, this thief. Sometimes that's what God has to do. But what about all these accidents that we witness going down the freeway of cars being chopped off from the top? What about pedestrians that are crossing the street like this lady not long ago that was on baseline and was hit by an Altima? What about all these people that, that all of a sudden by a drive-by shooting are, are found dead? What about all these accidents? See, tomorrow is not guaranteed, folks. And some of you are waiting for that tomorrow. You know, well, when I get sick and when I'm in the hospital, I will make my deathbed confession then. But what says you're going to even make it then? What says something else is not going to take us out before then? The thief, he sought the only modest token of mercy from Christ. All he said was, just, just remember me. I, I know you, and to his theology, his thinking, his understanding, I, I've, I'm, the gods are mad at me. Or God is mad at me. Or even you might be mad at me. But just, just think about me. That's all. His request was final, desperate, end of his rope type of a plea. And that's kind of where you and I are right now. We've got to make that commitment. And we need to understand that God is just willing and ready because he's already placed that in your heart. However, what's going on here? As there's nothing else that has to, be, has to happen except for Jesus Christ justifying you by faith. Jesus' word to the dying thief conveyed to him an unqualified promise of full forgiveness, covering every evil deed he had ever done. He wasn't expected to atone for his own sins, do penance, or perform any rituals. He wasn't consigned to any other type of life that he had to leave. That was all Christ said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. But it was all that he needed to hear. For the first time in his life, he was free from the burdens of sin. The Savior at his side was bearing that sin for him, and the thief was now clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. Soon they would be in paradise together. The thief had Christ's word on it. Jesus' promise. There's salvation at the cross. Number three, there are relationships at the cross. This is very important. There are relationships at the cross. Jesus made provision for his mother, and he developed this relationship between his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved. When you come to the cross, you'll see real brothers and sisters. You'll see your genuine spiritual family. And sometimes it's, un it's unfortunate that our own personal carnal family is not even treating us in the same way that a Christian family would. Jesus' enemies were not the only spectators at the cross. Those that were around him were not only there. There was a, a lot of information being disseminated throughout the city. It was busy. It was Passover. A lot of people had just finished celebrating or getting ready to celebrate the Passover. 
And so you have all this, and all this noise going on, and, and, and somehow everyone got the word. Hey, they arrested Jesus. Hey, you know what? They're going to crucify him. And they followed him, and they followed him to the cross, and, and they gathered around, and they saw everything that was, was happening, and, and they were afraid, and they were wondering, what's going on here? Jesus, what's happening? And if you turn with me to John chapter 19, verse 26, in John 19, 26, we find the story of Jesus talking to the disciple whom he loved. It's interesting that in the book of John, John's never mentioned by name, but he's always mentioned as the, the apostle whom Jesus loved. And in verses 26 and on, it says this. When, uh, Well, you know what? I'm going to start at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus... They took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. That is taken out of Psalms 22, verse 18. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then as best he could, as soon as he caught his breath, he said, then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. It's interesting that John is the one that took care of Jesus' mother. It indicates in verse 26 that he himself was present, and he says that he is the one that Jesus loved. And the pain of watching Jesus die must have been so agonizing to his mother. Parents, I'm speaking to you now. You probably have seen one of your kids fall and scrape their knees, break a bone, get cut to the point of having to rush them to the hospital, you know the anguish and the pain that you feel when you see your child hurt and the things that, that just go on on a regular daily basis. Can you imagine? Some of you have lost your children. Some of you have been there. And, and I'm not taking anything away from that. And I, I could probably, I, I couldn't even begin to understand or fathom the pain you went through. Now multiply that times a thousand as his mother saw the punishment, the cruelty that was placed upon her son and the anguish that she was going through because of everything that had taken place. And, and all of this was prophesied at the moment that Jesus Christ was born. Don't, I don't know if you remember, but in Luke chapter 2, chapter two verses 34 and and 35, when after Jesus was born, they brought him to the temple to be dedicated. And Simon had, was, a, was a prophet, and he knew that the, the consolation of Israel was about to, to show. And, and he sees Jesus Christ as a child, eight days old. And he says, thank you, God, for giving me the opportunity to see with my own eyes that what you're going to do. And he says, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. And then he says this, yes. A sword will pierce through your own soul also, as he's talking to Mary, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And this is coming into play. And her heart was torn. The sword that Simeon spoke of was now piercing her heart. She had reared him from childhood. She knew his utter perfection better than anyone else. 
And, and yet she watched and crowds of people poured contempt on her son, cruelly mocking him and abusing him. His bleeding, shattered form hung helplessly on the cross. All she could do was watch his agony. The sorrow and pain, such a sight would cause his mother is unimaginable. And yet, instead of falling, fainting, running away, she stood. She stood and she stayed until the final moment. She was depleted, exhausted, in obvious turmoil, but she stood. The very model of courage. It's interesting to know that when Jesus says woman, he, he wasn't being disrespectful. Because there was a point in time when Jesus Christ started his ministry. He became her master. And she became a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. It's important to know that the very first sign that John tells us is that Jesus turning water into wine. And it's important to know that when they asked Mary, hey, what should we do? Jesus says, don't talk to me. Go talk to him. Do whatever he says. It's important to know that Mary was, was, uh, went into John's house. John wrote four books. I don't know if you know this. I'm sorry. Yes, five books. He wrote the book of John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And he wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ, which we call the book of Revelation. And it's important to know that as John cared for Mary all those years, not once did he ever mention the veneration of a Mary. Not once did he ever mention that there should be some Mariology. Not once did he ever mention that we should worship and go to her instead of Jesus Christ. It's important to know that Mary had an important role, and it's important to know that, that everything that she did was according to God's uh, will and God's uh, what he had said, and she was obedient. And, and it's important to know this, that in Luke chapter 11, verses 27 through 28, that, that as he was walking, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And Jesus rebuked her right away and he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed is Mary because she was obedient. Because she was obedient. Mary was blessed because she was obedient to the word of God. The same as any other believer. Her position as Christ's mother did not carry any special titles or any other form of deification of the medieval superstitions that had been added and attached to, to her, to the popular conception of Mary. Let's be perfectly clear. It is a form of idolatry. But nonetheless, Christ loved and honored his mother. He loved her and he carried that fifth commandment to the end. And he perfectly fulfilled that as part of the responsibility of honoring one's parents. It is perhaps significant that Jesus did not commit Mary to one of his half-brothers. You know, Jesus had other brothers that Mary had along with Joseph. And somewhere along the line, we don't hear of Joseph anymore, and apparently he has passed away. He was a lot older. And at this point, we, we know that Jesus had other brothers, but they didn't believe in him. And they didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. John, John believed in him. John loved Jesus. And John, I'm sure, was probably visited many times and was able to eat the lentils and, the, and, and all the leavened or unleavened bread that Mary would cook. And so Jesus says, this is the person. I, Matthew, John, take care of her. Care for her. She's a widow. She doesn't have anyone else around her to care for her. Please care for her. You find relationships at the cross, relationships that otherwise you would never have known. 
I come from a faraway land. Okay, maybe it's not a land, but it seems to be. And I've never lived in Southern California until I got here almost 25 years ago. And, uh, and, and we've, been here, we've been here ever since. And when we got here, we didn't know anybody except for the fellowship of God. And we connected with the church, and right away it was like, you know, I've known you guys all my life. And that's the way the fellowship needs to be. And that's the way the fellowship is. There's relationships at the cross. People that are going through the same things that you've gone through. People that are going through uh, similar or things before you that they can help you and lead you. None of us are alone here. There are relationships at the cross. Number four, there is comfort at the cross. There is comfort at the cross. You're never alone. Christ's fourth saying from the cross is far the riches with mystery and meaning. Matthew writes it like this in Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. He says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sakbakthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And it is an obvious point to the direction of Psalm 22. Back in those days, we didn't get chapters and verses until much later after the printing press came in, and, and we didn't get verses or indications. The only way you can actually identify a portion of Scripture was by quoting the first part of the verse of that chapter or the one that you were trying to identify. And they were so in tune to God, God's word that all they knew all I had to do is if somebody would say, okay, turn to Eli, Eli Lamaxabakthani, oh, that's Psalms 22, as we know it today. And they would turn there. And it was an attention getter from Jesus, but it was much more than that. It was obvious if you read chapter 20, excuse me, if you read, yes, chapter 22 of Psalms, you will see the crucifixion just unfold hundreds of years prior to the birth of Christ. You will see David speaking about this king, this person that is being reviled by, by dogs and how they cast lots for his clothing and, and how they pierce his hands and his feet. But some, some people have gone to great lengths to say this is what he's pointing at, which is, which is true, but, but Christ hung there. He was bearing the sins of the world. Now, get this, I hope you can. He was dying as a substitute for others. To him was imputed the guilt of their sins. And he was suffering the punishment for those sins on their behalf. And at the very essence of that punishment was the outpouring of God's wrath against sinners. And in some mysterious way during those awful hours on the cross, the Father poured out the full measure of his wrath upon Jesus Christ. And he just laid it on him. Of every saint, of every redeemed, of every person that would come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ upon him. And he was the recipient of the wrath of God. And he received God's full wrath. And this was his son that he poured it out on. Now, imagine, just for a moment if you can, what that might feel like. Definitely loneliness. Definitely, why am I here doing this all by myself? And, and what's, what, what lies in the cross, the meaning of the cross is Jesus Christ is our substitution so that you and I won't have to go through that. And what we end up doing is we end up recognizing and realizing, at least I hope you do, that Jesus took your sin. And he placed it on himself. 
We hang crosses in our churches, on our necks, in our, in our cars, on our houses. And we adorn them. And they're beautiful. And, and they're, they're a symbol. But if you would have known, if anyone back then would even come to present day, they would come up and they would look and they would say, what are you doing with that execution on your wall or around your neck? Because to the first century person, they knew what that meant. Jesus knew what that meant. Beloved, we need to know what that means. Jesus took my sin. And here's what was happening on the cross. God was punishing his own son as if he had committed every wicked deed done by every sinner who had ever lived. And he did that so that he can forgive and treat those redeemed as if Christ had perfected their lives. As if they had lived Christ's perfect life of righteousness and as if Christ had lived their life, my life, in utter sin. That's what God did on the cross. The Bible tells us specifically in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We find back in Isaiah chapter 53 that he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities upon him, and was chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Also in Isaiah 53, verse 9, Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And another translation would say, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was put, he has put him to grief. It pleased God. And it, and it was an offering. And, and, and this is what God did. It, it was the will of God himself to crush him and to put him to grief. It had to be done. It was the only way to take care of your sin, to take care of my sin. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And in 1 John chapter 2, he says, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It was God's own wrath against sin. God's own righteousness, God's own sense of, in, of justice that Christ satisfied on the cross. The shedding of his blood was a sin offering rendered to God. His death was not merely a satisfaction of public justice, nor was it a ransom paid to Satan. The ransom that was paid, it was paid to God. It is owned to God. And God is the one that is owed some sort of righteousness. And Jesus Christ took care of that for you, took care of that for me. Jesus didn't pay this to Satan. Jesus didn't ask him for the keys to get all the people out of prison. It's God that he's bringing this payment to. It is God that he is ransoming this from. Christ died in our place and in our stead. He received the very same outpouring of divine wrath and all its fury that we deserve. But he took it upon himself. It was a punishment so severe that a mortal man could spend all eternity in torments of hell, and still he would not have begun to exhaust the divine wrath that was heaped upon Christ at the cross. This is how severe and, and, and meaningful that we need to understand of what Jesus Christ went through on the cross. Number five, 
there is fulfillment at the cross. There's accomplishment. There's satisfaction. There's this, this understanding that it, it has been taken care of. And what and this is kind of, and I've got to explain this to you a little bit because of what Jesus says in John chapter 19, verse 28. He says this. He says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill scripture, by the way, I thirst. Now, this is what Jesus knew. He knew that he had to fulfill scripture. And he had up to this point, And it was prophesied that he would cry out and say that he was thirsty, that a, that a vessel was to be given, and they, they filled the vessel, the sponge, with sour wine, and they put it on his sop and put it to his mouth. And that was prophesied, and it was spoken of, and so Jesus Christ had to fulfill that prophecy. It's interesting that the reed that they used was hyssop, and it's almost difficult to get a hyssop reed. It's kind of like a long... Uh, flimsy reed, but yet they used it, and they used it to pour the wine or give the sour drink to Jesus. It's significant that it was hyssop, because that's the same material that was used. That's the same plant that was used at the Passover lamb to sprinkle the blood over the doorposts. Here it seems as if John is trying to make, is making this connection. He is the Passover lamb. He is the Christ. He is the one. In thirst, we see true uh, humanity that Jesus Christ embedded. He was in him. We see that he was thirsty. We see that he had a fulfilled scripture. But he had two more sayings yet. And he hung there. He was dehydrated. He was in pain. And he needed to get those words out. So whatever it was that they placed in his mouth gave him enough to be able to speak the next words. But most importantly, it was to fulfill scripture. If he thirsts, we see Christ true humanity. Although he was God incarnate in his physical body, he was man. He experienced all the normal human limitations of real flesh, all the human limitations of a man that had just gone through, well, hell, basically. And none was more vivid than this moment, agonizing of thirst. In hours of hanging on the cross, he suffered bodily to an extent few have ever suffered. Which brings us to number six. There is completion at the cross. There is completion at the cross. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Tatalestai. Or to put it in English, in our vernacular, it is finished. Tatalestai. One word in Greek. It is finished. It's done. I've completed the task. Five uses of the word Tatalestai. In Greek, a servant would use it and say, the task is complete, master. In a judge, in a court uh, of law, the judge will use, justice has been served. And he pounds the gavel on the, on, the, on the table. An accountant that has balanced the books, he would say, the debt has been paid in full. An artist would use that word and say, a picture is finished. And a priest would say, the perfect offering has been given. It is finished. And it's interesting that when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, 
And he's talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And she comes and, and, and she says, he says, can you get me some water? And, you, you know, what are you doing talking to me? And they have this conversation. And, and, she's, and as they're talking together, he says to her, Jesus said, because he asked, where are you going to get food from? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The NIV puts it this way. I need to finish the work that Jesus Christ was sent to do. And so he stands, he's hanging there, and he looks up and says, God, I'm done. I've completed everything you've asked me to do. You need to complete everything God has asked you to do. There's completion. There's finality. It is taken care of. It is done at the cross. The cross has taken care of everything for us. The ransom for sin was paid. The wages of sin were settled forever. All that remained was for Christ to die so that he might rise again. That is why nothing can be added to the work of Christ for salvation. There is nothing that you can do. No work, no type of anything. Because Jesus Christ took care of it all. Many religions will tell you, these are the things you must do to make it into heaven, to make it into paradise, to make it to wherever it is that they're wanting to send you. But for us, it's not a matter of what we do. It's a matter of what's already been done. It is finished. Don't need to add anything more. We don't need to supplement our works. We don't need to improve any more to that. The atonement he purchased on the cross, and the sinner is required to contribute nothing. To earn forgiveness or a right standing with God, the merit of Christ alone is sufficient for all full salvation. To Tetelestai, the atoning work is done, all of it. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Because you have been saved, because you understand these seven sayings, that there's forgiveness on the cross, that there is salvation at the cross, that there are relationships at the cross, that there is comfort at the cross, there is fulfillment at the cross, and there is completion at the cross, then my natural response is to say, Lord, what do I need to do? Send me, Lord, because of what you've done for me. Not because I want to be saved, because I am saved. And the last thing I want to share with you today is there is victory at the cross. There is victory at the cross. Amen? Amen. Christ's final saying from the cross, right after it is finished, was a prayer that expressed the unqualified submission it had been in his heart from the very beginning. And Luke records it like this in Luke 23, verse 46. Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a, lo with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Christ died as no other man has ever died. In one sense, he was murdered by the hands of wicked men. And in another sense, it was God who sent him to the cross and bruised him there. Yet putting himself to grief, and it pleased God to do this. Yet still in another sense, actually Jesus Christ is the one who laid down his own life. He laid down his own life. He says, I, I willingly lay it down. I willingly lay it down for those whom I love. And because he can lay down his own life, he can raise it back up again. We can say that the Jews had a hand in it, 
but they didn't actually kill Jesus. We can say that the Romans had a hand in it, and they did. We can say that the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rest of the the rulers, they had a hand in it. We can say that the crowds had a hand in it, but really it was Jesus Christ's passion. This is why this week is called Passion Week. Many of you know the word passion as a strong desire, an emotion that drives you to another person or another thing or something that drives you to do something. But the real definition of passion is Jesus Christ dying on the cross. He had a drive, a desire to go to the cross for you and I. That was his passion. That's why we call this Passion Week. And he finally expired on the cross. After it was all done, he says, God, I'm done. I'm into your hands, I commit my spirit. The Bible says that his head just hung, and he died. When he finally expired, it was not with the, a struggle. It wasn't like he was crying or trying to get off the cross. It wasn't anything to that extent. It was just a simple, as he breathed his last breath. Like every other aspect of the crucifixion drama, Jesus Christ was totally in control. His sovereignty through the whole thing, from the moment he walked into Jerusalem on the donkey, from the moment that he ministered amongst them and he was anointed for burial, from the moment that he did the Passover and told Judas to go and do quickly what he's about to do, to the time that he is arrested and all through all that struggle, he, sovereign God, was in total control. Nobody took his life, he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Quietly, submissively, he he simply yielded his life. And that's what he did. Everything had come to pass exactly as he had said it would. Not only Jesus, but also his killers and, and the mocking crowds, together with Pilate and Herod and the Sanhedrin, all had perfectly fulfilled the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God to the letter. This is why we call this Good Friday. You might see some of the pictures, some of the graphics. You might see some of the cruel things that happened to Jesus Christ and wonder to yourself, why do they call it Good Friday? Because that's what he called it. I call this my good and perfect pleasure. To you, my Father, my God, I am surrendering everything for the people that you have saved. There is a price that's been paid for you, beloved, if you're a genuine believer. If you have not yet committed your life to Christ, if you have not yet felt and sensed that God is drawing you, then do it right now, basically the way I stated earlier. Fear God. Fear God. Recognize that you're a sinner. Admit it. Admit it. Confess This man has done nothing wrong. Confess that he is the perfect lamb, the sacrifice. Ask God to forgive you. Turn away from that sin and move over and become and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord because he is going to his kingdom. He did go to his kingdom and he is coming back. That's why we call this Good Friday. And so thank you so much for hanging in there with me. I want to pray for you one last time. And I want to pray for your family as we celebrate this weekend, this the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And like I've said before, thank God we don't have all those bunnies and eggs clouding up what 
it truly means. For the first time in a very long time, many of you are able to recognize the true meaning of what this resurrection celebration means. You know what's going to happen here? As soon as we're done with this COVID-19 thing, what's going to happen here is that many people are going to go back to the same as before. I pray not, but that's exactly what's going to happen. Stores are going to open up. People are going to go and take care of things that they need to take care of, do things that they want to do that they've missed. There are some things that you have learned along the way these last few weeks. Number one, family is important. You know that family is important. Many of you are praying for your children, your parents. Many of you are praying for the elderly. You're praying for them because you don't want them to get sick. And it's, it's good. I'm glad you're doing that. Number two, you're realizing church is important. I mean, this is nice that you can see it online, but, but it's, it's no substitute to the real thing. It really isn't. And I pray that this doesn't become the norm. And I pray that we learn something from this, that right now, as it's taken away from us, that we take advantage of when it comes back. And we're asking once a week. We're asking, you know, on Wednesdays for Bible study, make it a big part of your life. And number three, we need to understand that Jesus Christ is coming back. He's setting things up. Many of you are following along as to what's going on behind the scenes. He's setting things up. We will come out of this with one world order, believe it or not. And it will happen. If it doesn't happen here soon, but it's, it's in the works. There's a lot of that. This is why we have to focus on what the Word of God says and recognize, fear God, recognize I'm a sinner, admit it, confess ask for forgiveness, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've done that today, please let me know. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I thank you once again for your word that is powerful and quick and alive. And I pray, God, that you use this time and this message to minister to your people, to reach those that you died for. And there are many out there, Lord, they are still waiting. There are many out there, Lord, that are still needing to hear and to be quickened and wakened. Because I know that each one of us, we were spiritually dead until you woke us up. So I pray for those that still need to hear your word. We know that your return is soon. So we ask you to get us ready as we continue to proclaim your word. So thank you, Father, for giving us an opportunity like a good Friday to share that with others. Continue to be with our families, protecting them, covering them, helping them. And the anxiety level that is in the homes of your people, Father, I pray that you remove it. Because you are in total control, just like you were during the crucifixion. Nobody takes it from you. And because no one can take your life, no one can take ours, unless you have already ordained it. So, Father, we thank you once again. I pray for each person in these, in these names. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Hope to see you guys soon.